1789, uh, James Madison brought forward a bunch of articles to amend, basically, the Constitution. Um, it's kind of a fascinating story, but you have the whole revolutionary period where uh, the states are literally banding together and fighting what they saw as kind of a tyrannous reign of a monarchy over their interests. And so, literally, more than two-thirds of the Declaration of Independence, if you look at it and kind of highlight it, is the case being made against um, the King of England, King George, for the various abuses uh, of his power over the, the colonies. It's, it's, it reads literally like a court case. We never talk about those parts because it's foreign. It's not really what we're familiar with. Um, but they were basically declaring their independence because of the tyranny of the rule of King George. So you have this whole period where they're fighting a monarchy. And then when the monarchy leaves, it's too expensive to continue this war. It's not going well. Uh, and they finally leave. You're left with a situation where the states are kind of independent. And so how are they going to align themselves? <clears throat> so you have a federation of states, which is an interesting word to us. We don't use it often. And I don't know if it'll show up. It didn't in the first service. It does. But you have a federation of states. So if you like... The good guys in Star Wars, it's the Federation as opposed to the Empire. So if you don't know this part, at least you, you know Star Wars. Um, and because we're a Federation, when it's talking about how are we going to have some sort of centralized authority or pull together or kind of um, give a government to this thing, what you're talking about is a word we're all familiar with, but the federal government. The federal government literally is the body that oversees the whole rather than the parts. In this argument, in this dialogue about a federal government, should we have one? What should it look like? How should it be constituted? Uh, you had a group of guys that engaged in propaganda, and their writings became known as the Federalist Papers. Okay, In this group was James Madison, uh, Alexander Hamilton. Alexander Hamilton Underneath George Washington was the Treasury Secretary and literally helped give structure to America the way it is, had a profound influence and impact on America. But these were strong Federalists. Um, they wanted a strong centralized government with enough authority to basically rule uh, over these states that, that were pulled together. Now, in reaction to this, and it's interesting, these papers they published, three different authors James Madison probably wrote about 60% of them, but they did it under uh, pseudonyms, and they would use old, uh, old Roman kind of senators and politicians, you know, Brutus and things like that. That's the names they would publish these things under. Uh, a group of people started publishing a response to that, which came to be known as the Anti-Federalist Papers. They, too, did it under kind of Roman pseudonyms and things like that. Uh, and in this group, you had... The famous Patrick Henry, give me liberty or give me death. Uh, you had George Mason. You had Sam Adams, who made good beer. Uh, now, their, their issue was this. Having just fought a monarchy, this thing called the presidency, uh, it, it's too much power, and it will evolve quickly into being a pseudo-monarchy. And we're going to be right back to where we were with some kind of a European monarchy. Um, and that's not okay. Why is that not okay? Uh, well, the view was 
that individuals had rights and that monarchies historically or traditionally had centralized all the power in the hands of the monarchy or the king at the expense of the rights of individuals. Okay? So the issue for the anti-federalists was one of individual rights. So what happened was, as the Constitution begins to make its way, the Constitution about how we're going to federalize this thing, as it made its way through the ratification process, you end up with the ratification convention in Massachusetts, and the whole thing kind of blows up. And so James Madison drafts 12 articles of amendment to this Constitution uh, that would be uh, eventually ratified several years later in 91 um, as the... uh, the first ten amendments to the Constitution. Um, two of them didn't get ratified. One was like uh, Congress um, not being able to set their own budget <laughs> or their own, their own pay for uh, congressmen. Um, I, I don't know if they still are able to do that or not. But, um, but so ten of these twelve were passed. Now the Bill of Rights, what it was doing was simply saying, let's balance out this Constitution with the principles that we had in the Declaration of Independence, the principles that really is a hallmark of, of Western or American thought with regard to individual human rights. And that's this. We, we're, we know it more familiarly in the phrases life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, when Thomas Jefferson wrote life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, what he was doing was he was taking the political theory of his day that was, was in the late 1600s put into writing by John Locke, the philosopher, in his two treatises on government, And Locke always said life, liberty, and property. And what he meant by property is simply this. Life is your own self, your own um, sovereignty over your own body, your own life. No one can violate that. Liberty is your freedom, your ability to exercise a degree of liberty. And then property, property in an agrarian society was seen as the ability to develop through hard work or your own pursuits the fulfillment of your potential. It was the ability to have your property and to be able to make something, so you, uh, if you should so choose, to make something out of your life. And when Jefferson brought this in and changed it to the pursuit of happiness, he was saying the exact same thing and was using happiness in the way Aristotle did, that happiness is a, a, something that you attain in old age because you aim your whole life that way. It's something that grows up. It's not momentary uh, feelings of happiness. It's the ability to develop and make something of yourself um, such that you've, you've honed in on your potential, you've fulfilled your potential, you've actualized it, um, the pursuit of happiness. And very much tied in with that. There's some interesting parallels to the whole idea of the land in Scripture and God promising the land to the Israelites and what that represented and the fact that it was good and, and just the chief of all blessings that way and, and the imagery that comes back in the end of scripture about land and there's some fascinating things that way but these ideas of life liberty and the pursuit of happiness come in in the declaration of independence now uh how do those get fleshed out practically life liberty and pursuit of happiness well that's what the bill of rights um came to be and if you go to the national archives in washington dc and you go into the rotunda where you have you have the Declaration, and then you have the um, Constitution, and then you have the Bill of Rights, and if you can stay put long enough, because there's just hordes of, of uh, kids on field trips, um, miserable experience, but you, 
if you stay there long enough, you can literally see how the theory of rights is played out from our Declaration of Independence into uh, the Constitution and then these Bill of Rights that amends the Constitution. The fascinating thing about the Declaration is you can barely read any of it. Um, the famous picture that we have of John Hancock's signature, it's his signature so blurry and half of it you can't even see. That what we're familiar with are, is the actual declaration as it looked when it was drafted. And, you know, many copies were made um, and, and uh, you know, pictures over time kind of a thing. But the, the actual declaration is so faded that half of it's unrecognizable. It, it hung in Congress in Philadelphia uh, on a wall right by a window for decades, and it's just kind of the, the goatskin parchment. So it's, it's hilarious when you see it because it doesn't look anything like it looks when you Google it. You know, where you can actually read it all. Um, but you go over to the Bill of Rights, and it's fascinating. They're numbered differently than the way we're used to seeing them, beca- again, because two of them didn't pass. Um, but you see the outworking of what shows up in the Declaration with due process and the freedom of speech and the freedom of, of religion in some sense. And, and if I was in Prineville, I'd talk about uh, the right to bear arms, you know, and, and you see, you see the outworking of these things, the balance to the Constitution, the federal government for individual rights. Um, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. These are, for Americans, essential, essential things that we, that we live with. And uh, it's our sensibilities it's our emotions. It's our center or our seat of conviction. We, we see things through rights language. That uh, is why I think we have a problem with the doctrine of hell. I think our biggest problem with the doctrine of hell is one of rights, the sentiment of rights in believing that hell literally is the antithesis of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness that it's a deprivation of life, it's certainly a deprivation of, of liberty, and it's the opposite of the pursuit of happiness. There is no potential, there is no development, there is no fulfillment. That hell literally is the black hole to this idea of natural rights that we have. And I think that's our biggest problem with hell. The question really then comes up, do we really have natural rights with regard to God in things like heaven and hell. You see, natural rights, this Western tradition of rights, you see it in the Declaration of Independence, comes from the idea that we've been endowed by our Creator with certain what? Inalienable rights. The Creator has made us in His image, the Imago Dei, and by doing that has bestowed on us a dignity and worth such that, that that inherent dignity and worth cannot, literally cannot be separated, inalienable, cannot be separated from our person. Okay? Uh, so when we look at other people, no monarchy, no federal government, no anything has the right to take away my life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Those are my inherent inalienable rights but they're bestowed on me by the Creator. So those rights that I can claim against you and I can claim them against the government, can I claim them against God? And it's a question I've never run into anyone else asking is what rights do we literally have to claim from God? I've been thinking about this for like a year. 
And I've come up with three. Uh, two of them go together. They all kind of go together. But here's the three rights I think we have that we literally can claim from God. We have the right to claim from God a measure of self-consistency or character. That God does not change, that he's not capricious. That if he says something, he means it and stands by it. That there's a degree of character in the person of God. That the doctrine of, of immutability, that God is fixed in some sense and that his character is not going to shift, that he's not capricious. I think we have a right to that. I think secondarily and following from it, we have a right to trust or rely or hold God accountable to the promises that he makes. I think God initiates those with us. It's his covenant or his bond. If someone initiates something with you, you have a right that you did not have prior to them initiating it. Does that make sense? If you didn't promise something to me, I don't have a right to it. The minute you promise something to me, I now have the right to claim that. Does that make sense? So I feel like to the degree that God has made covenants, we have to understand those correctly. We can't just put words in God's mouth, but to the degree that there are covenants or promises that God has made, I believe we have a right uh, to claim those from God. And then lastly, we have a right when we or if we are sons and daughters of God to claim or expect the rights that a child would have of a father. Now, it's really interesting in Scripture that God uh, or the Bible talks about all men and women being the creation of God. But only some of the creation does God use the language of, of, of adoption and literally bringing in as sons and daughters. A painting can't claim much from the painter. But a son or a daughter can claim from the father that the father treat them in a certain way commensurate with that relationship. Obligations that a father would have for a child. Does that make sense? So to the degree that we're adopted in and we can call ourselves sons and daughters of God, we then have another right, and that, that namely is the right to claim of God the obligations that a father would have for a child. That's what I've come up with, that we have those three rights. Now, the interesting fact is that none of those rights, um, so it seems to me, precludes hell. None of those rights, it seems to me, precludes hell. Paul goes into this argument in Romans, and he says this. He says, in, in probably the most uh, famous chapter on the sovereignty of God, Paul says this, What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he has called, not just from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. God doesn't discriminate between race. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Paul says this, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what does molded say to the molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of some lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? 
Paul is getting at the very core of our sentiments. But you will say, and then he comes back and says, but does not God have the right as the creator over what's been created? Um, and it seems to me that, that Paul is right, that is, regardless of how we feel about it, that the inalienable rights passed on to us by the creator are things belonging to the creator and that he has a right over his creation. Now, what we tend to do is we've, we form um, a union with regard to theology. A union is an interesting thing. A labor union, for example, if, if you form a labor union, what you're basically doing is saying, let's pool together a group of people that feel strongly in a certain way and as we pool this, this group together and we put together our shared sentiment, we can then leverage a degree of power over the corporation or organization or government that has control over us, can in some sense dictate terms to us, and we can lobby back for a change in the nature of that relationship. Does that make sense? It's what a union is, what a union does. We form, I think without even realizing it sometimes, especially in America, out of our sense of rights and out of our sense of, of our, our emotions and how we, in some sense, would prefer things to be, we begin to form theological unions. We find other people that feel the same way we do about a, a particular doctrinal point or about some kind of an issue in Christianity or in the Bible. And they affirm us because they feel the same way. And pretty soon we begin to have a shared group where we all kind of feel the same way. And, and that, that gives us a sense of uh, momentum and identity and conviction. And then literally we will use that and, and push back and say, surely all of our sentiment can't be wrong. Surely doctrine must be this way instead of this way. And then we end up forming some sort of a lobby group that literally tries to push back on doctrine out of that shared sentiment. It's something that, that kind of happens. It's an interesting phenomenon. It's something that's happening in the United States today with the doctrine of hell. It doesn't fit our American sentiment. Um, here's the other aspect of our American sentiment with regard to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness that makes it hard for us to understand God's perspective. Um, selfishness. We find it distasteful, right? But we can't really go beyond that. If I run into you and you're really selfish or you're really spoiled or you treat people poorly because you literally only see self. If I run into you and you are selfish, as an American, I look at that and I find it distasteful. But it's your life, it's your liberty, it's your pursuit of happiness. As long as you're not harming anybody else, so to speak, I, I just move on, right? However... There's something really interesting that happens in Scripture where God comes at this from the position of the maker and he doesn't just find it distasteful. He, he responds to that kind of selfishness with a degree of righteous indignation that says, I, you are using your freedoms to only magnify yourself to the exclusion of others or by not leveraging your power, your influence, your control, your resources to help others who cannot help themselves, you are, in some sense, in this selfishness, 
uh, perpetuating a level of brokenness and pain in this world that I don't desire for it. You, in fact, are broken. I made you to be a participant in my plan, my glory for a just society and for, for shalom and for community where love is actually a value and, and it happens this way. You're broken and you're, you're breaking other things in this selfishness. I don't just find that distasteful. I actually find it reprehensible. I have a, a measure of righteous indignation for that. And so in Scripture, whenever God judges people, you see a real, like, where it really catches people off guard when they're being judged by God. Whoa, I mean, was I really that bad of a person? And in God's mind, he's like, you just don't see it the way I see it. You just don't get it because you're just kind of going through life and just serving yourself, and you don't really feel like you're a Hitler or you're whatever. But you're broken, you're breaking everything else, and if I so choose, I have the right to punish that. So what it is God punishes sin, that we all fall short of the glory of God. What does it mean to fall short of the glory of God? It's that this imago Dei that he's put in people, this image of God, that instead of acting out of that, and acting in concert or harmony with what the character and the values of God would be such that our lives literally could be like that, that of Christ, where we really are bringing a measure of, of healing and reconciliation to the world. We fall short of what it would be like to live like that. We're broken, and we bring brokenness, more brokenness into the world. And so we've all fallen short of the glory of God. We've all sinned. We don't think it's really, I mean, you know, Punishing people going to hell, that seems extreme. They're just selfish, you know? I mean, so another part of this thing is when we look at heaven and hell, we don't get the idea of, of sin being really all that bad. It's more distasteful than anything else. God sees it totally different. So it seems to me that there's two reasons two things that, that come to the forefront when we talk about the doctrine of hell. One of them is, is it within logic? Like, is there something inherently irrational about hell or, or illogical about hell? It's the first question. The second question then is, in what does Scripture say, which is the authority for believers? My answer to the first one is, I don't find anything inherently illogical or irrational about the doctrine of hell. I might not like it. In fact, outside of talking about tithing, it's probably my least favorite thing to talk about. Um, someone asked me this morning, are you excited to talk about hell? And I was like, no, I'm not excited to talk about hell. I'd rather talk about anything, like women's ministries, more than talk about hell, you know. <laughs> um, you know, I don't like it, but it's not illogical. Uh, Martin Luther, you might be somewhat familiar with it, but Martin Luther in 1521 at the Diet of Worms, he's already been excommunicated, but this is his chance to, in some sense, recant. And, and he's put before all his books, and, and he's given his one chance to say whatever he's going to say. And the famous saying that's come down through history for us is, um, here I stand, I can do no other. To go against conscience is neither good nor wise. And the idea here is that he's saying, on Scripture, and Scripture alone, I stand. The reality is, uh, the way it comes down through history, is that, that Luther says, unless you show me by right 
reason or by Scripture, then here I stand, I can do no other. Uh, Luther was a doctor of theology. He was a very, very smart guy. And he's saying, look, you either have to, to explain it to me or argue it in such a way that's compelling rationally or show me that it violates Scripture if you're going to get me to change my doctrinal beliefs. So again, I think the two tests for us are rationality and then Scripture. The first one I don't think is that, that hell is necessarily irrational. What does Scripture say? Um, so let's turn to Matthew 25 and, and let's try and get at this doctrine of hell and get underneath it. And Matthew 25 is one of, or probably one of the primary of many passages that kind of come at this from different ways. And it's Jesus speaking, and I'll try and run through it fast and paraphrase just a little bit, but it's a parable on the sheep and the goats. And what Jesus is saying is saying, when the uh, Son of Man comes to glory and all the angels are with, are, are with him, he's going to separate the sheep from the goats. The goats here are the bad guys. So if you're a goat, you're typecasted as the bad guy. And he'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. The good guys on, on the right, the bad guys on the left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you are blessed by my Father. Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me, gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. And then the good guys, the righteous, will be a little bit perplexed and they're going to say, but um, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? We don't really remember seeing you and doing those things for you. And Jesus is going to say, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Jesus, there's a couple different ways you can parse this out, but there's a principle of extension where he's arguing for uh, a sphere of concern outside of his own physical body that literally is identified with him as if it was his own physical body. Right? So we hear that and we're like, oh, it sounds like a bunch of mumbo-jumbo. I don't see Jesus. How is that Jesus? Right? Let me try and give you my best shot at it by being very dramatic and, and couching it in extreme language. But this is what Jesus is kind of saying. I have four daughters. When I go to CNN and I see some, some sicko in Wyoming or Utah or wherever kidnapping some 13-year-old girl, taking her into the woods and keeping her for you know, half a dozen or ten years until she escapes or is found or something like that. It freaks me out. I mean, it freaks me out. Um, I walk around Bend, and, you know, if you look strange, you know, uh, I mean, it's Bend, right? You know, but still, I'm a dad with four daughters, and it freaks me out. Um, here's the idea. If one of my daughters was stolen from me, taken to some trailer in Wyoming, and kept by some crazy guy. And every night, I'm helpless. I'm lost. I have no idea where my daughter is. It's the only thing I can think about in my whole of life. doesn't matter whether I'm in the McDonald's drive through line or whether I'm half asleep. All of my waking minutes are, are, are wrapped up in me thinking about my daughter. Um, if that situation existed... 
here is something that would be absolutely true. Anything any one of you did for my daughter in that situation, you would be doing for me. Do you understand me? Anything. No separation at all between me, my daughter, and you in that situation if you were to help her. Jesus is saying, look, you don't get that when I talk about the orphan, the widow, and the alien all throughout Scripture, um, go on Amazon and buy the Justice and Poverty Bible by the American Bible Society. Just buy it. You can get it used for like 10 bucks. They highlight in orange every single verse that has to do with, with poverty and the poor. Um, uh, around 2,100 or 2,200 verses in the Bible. And you can just flip through that Bible and let the color tell you that's some, something that you might miss otherwise. That there's a thread of justice throughout all of Scripture that never stops. And Jesus is saying, when I talk about these things, I mean it. I care about those people. I really, 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 really care. Okay? If you do this for them, you do it for me. You might not have realized that, but, but you did. And you do. And it matters. Um, it's amazing that half the time the Bible or, or the New Testament talks about salvation and eternity. It's always couched in passages on justice. It's amazing. We want to drive this wedge between the spiritual and the material. And it's the social gospel and the liberals. Man, they really care about the social and the material and earthly. And they miss heaven and, and spiritual, which is what really matters. And we conservatives, you know, we know that it's all about salvation. And, and it's, that's really, this stuff's a distraction from this. And it's like, no, that's Gnostic. That's a heresy. Don't, don't you remember? That's a heresy for much of the early church was to say that spiritual is good and matter is bad and that the two are separate. These things are an amalgam of reality. And the Bible weaves these things together and most all of these passages on, on salvation are couched in justice passages too. Look at the Good Samaritan and back up a couple verses and see what precipitated that. Um, it, it's a fascinating thing and we can't, Treat these like this. But so Jesus is given this whole thing, and in the middle of it, he's talking about, you're going to know me when you know justice and do justice and understand it. By, by parity of reasoning, he's going to say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. And they also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick and in prison, and you did not help you? And, and Jesus will say, I tell you the truth, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these you did not do for me. Um, I don't like being tested. I really don't like it if you test me and don't tell me you're testing me. Like, that just doesn't jive with me, right? These people are saying, look, um, you were testing us? Okay, wh when did you show up? Like, where were you? Like, I, I mean, I know I would have seen you. I mean, you had a beard and you had blue eyes and, you know, you look handsome and I've seen the pictures. I would have seen you. Um, and I'm pretty sure I would have done something or at least got your autograph. You know, where were you? Um, was I being tested? Did I miss you? Did you come in disguise? What's going on? Like, um, and Jesus is like, yeah, yeah, you don't get it. 
I find selfishness more than distasteful. In your selfishness, you neglected to have a a measure of concern for others that would have honored me or that would have been in in concert with what I asked of you. Um, But you had no such concern. It's interesting. uh, We talk about justice here at Antioch a lot because justice is a part of theology. Not because it's faddish or cool. Uh, And I have to learn a lot of these things myself. We do the justice conference. And a group of Native Americans um, have pursued me the last month or so and pulled me into dialogue because in, in Bend, we had the justice conference last year and there was no mention of Native American things. And at first you might be like, oh yeah, well everyone's got a complaint. Did you know that in the 1940s there was something called the sundowner laws in Bend? That it was literally illegal if you're a Native American to be on the streets of Bend after sunset? See, I didn't know that. It's your forefathers that did that in Bend. I'm, I'm from somewhere else. No. Um, that's the context of this, this. This is the West. It never really occurred to me, but this is the place where men, women, and children were slaughtered in villages, hundreds of them at a time. And, and we, Manifest Destiny, took the land uh, on the backs of another race, the genocide of another race, because life, liberty, property. Um, but we denied them their rights. So it wasn't until the 14th Amendment after the Civil War, 14th Amendment reversing Dred Scott, that, that the rights of citizenship actually by law were passed on to African Americans. Crazy. Well, I, you know what I had to do with these people coming to me and saying, look, what's going on with the Justice Conference in the Northwest and you make no, no mention of Native American issues whatsoever? You know what I had to do? I had to say, you know what, you're right, I'm sorry. I have yet to have put myself in a spot to understand or identify with the plight of Native Americans and to feel in my gut what that would have felt like. My dad was an immigrant. I, don't, you know, I haven't asked permission. To, I'm not going to tell like a real story. My dad, he's told me some stories of what life was like when he was an immigrant the first couple years of his life. It just, you know, it like turns your gut. How mean people can be to other mean, especially, you know, to other kids. And, you know, and even adults, how mean they can be to kids. You know, and this is just an immigrant, another European immigrant kid. And, you're, and, and it just kills me in my gut. It's like, man, how could people be so mean? Why did I feel that? Because I can identify with putting myself in my dad's shoes. I just had never done that with Native Americans. So I'm pursuing some people on the Warm Springs Reservation and, and I'm going to make some friends and I'm going to take the time to sit down for coffee and have lunch and try and learn a, a little bit broader what life really is like and what, what the history of this culture is really like, that it might help me grow in wisdom, um, that I can be just a little bit more mature and, and healthy as I try to glorify God. Does that make sense? We all have to learn. None of us are, I I have to learn a lot. There's people in this congregation that are way further than me. But but all of us have to learn. It matters. People who are oppressed matter. People who are vulnerable matter. Needy people matter. Helpless people matter. 
And we have to take the time to stop and think about those things, identify with those things. And, and Jesus is saying, look, no test. I just asked you to do something. And when I come back, I'm going to check to see if you did it. He gave other parables that talked about the stewardship of the servants that he left in charge of his house. And he came back, and some stewards of the household were just off doing their own thing, and others were doing what he, he asked them to do when he left them in charge of his household. So it's, you know, no real test. You know, Jesus, where were you? I, I missed you. Did you come back? No, no. I, I left you in charge. And I, and, and I, I was watching and hoping that you would do what I'd asked you to do. And so this passage ends with this. Read it again when it shows up. Uh, And these, the ones on the left, the goats, will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now that phrase in Matthew 25 here is one of the places where we really see the two aspects of hell come together. The aspect of time and the aspect of nature, the nature of hell. What's going on there? What's the purpose of it? And we see here a time duration of eternity or forever, and you see that the function of it is one of judgment. Now, I want to do something that I've never done and I don't want to do. It's like one more step down the road of things I wouldn't want to do on a Sunday, but I want to bring in a book that came out recently by Rob Bell, Many of you have seen it, heard about it, whatever, but love wins. And it's, it typifies kind of the new movement of, of forming a union against theology and, and trying to just change, change theology that way. Um, and this is a couple pages from the heart of his book that present the heart of the argument. So this is the crux, okay? So I want, I want to put it in that language so that we can analyze it in our pursuit of understanding what Scripture really says. Does that make sense? So I'm going to read it. I didn't realize it would be this small, but I'm going to go ahead and read it for you, and then we'll analyze it. It says this, As God says time and time again in the prophets, I've tried everything else, and they won't listen. The result, Paul is convinced, is that wrongdoers, because love wins, will become rightdoers. We see the same impulse in the story Jesus tells in Matthew 25 about sheep and goats being judged and separated. The sheep are sent to one place, while the goats go to another place because of their failure to see Jesus and the hungry and thirsty and naked. The goats are sent, in the Greek language, to an ion of kalazo. Ion, we know, has several meanings. One is age or period of time. Another refers to intensity of experience. The word kalazo is a term from horticulture. It refers to the pruning and the trimming of the branches of a plant so that it can flourish. An ion of kalazo. Depending on how you translate ion and kalazo, then, the phrase can mean a period of pruning or a time of trimming or an intense experience of correction. In a good number of English translations of the Bible, the phrase ion of Colazzo gets translated as eternal punishment, which many read to mean punishment forever, as in never going to end. But forever is not uh, really a category the biblical writers used. The closest the Hebrew writers come to a word for forever is the word olam, Alam can be translated as to a vanishing point in the far distance, a long time, long lasting, or that which is at or beyond the horizon. When Alam refers to God, as in Psalm 90, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God, it is much closer to the word forever, as we think of it, um, time without beginning or end. But then in other passages, when it's not describing God, it has very different meanings, as when 
Jonah prays to God, uh, who let him go down into the belly of a fish forever, Olam, and then three days later brought him out of the belly of the fish. Olam, in this instance, turns out to be three days. We need to I'll just take an aside here for a minute because I'm not going to come back to it, so I want to do it while we're here. Um, okay, Olam, when it refers to God, has a sense in which it can mean forever. When it doesn't refer to God, like in Jonah, um, three days, it means not forever. Now, if you look in your Bible, you're never going to see the word forever show up in reference to Jonah because the word alam, like other words, is context-dependent. And when you put a time designator with it, you say duration, and you say when the duration is going to end. So no one would have ever, no, no Hebrew translator, no anybody would have ever put forever uh, after, and then three days. They would have put it for the time of three days. Okay, That's just contextualization. That has nothing to do with the word olam when it's not used with God doesn't mean forever. That means when it's used with a certain number of days, it means a certain number of days. Do you see the false dichotomy between the two? The word olam is used of God for forever and for, for, for forever of the heavens being in the heavens forever. The moon and the stars forever. The, earth, the foundations of the earth are forever. It's not that it's God and not God. It's context and context. Do you understand what I'm saying? Um, it's a versatile, by the way, you like the 90s here? It's, it's me with the 90s. Um, it's a versatile, pliable word. In most occurrences, referring to a particular period of time. So when we read eternal punishment, it's important that we don't read categories and concepts into a phrase that aren't there. Whoa, let's stop again. A good number of English translations of the Bible say eternal punishment. Um, but it can mean other things. It, and then all of a sudden, it's important that we don't read categories and concepts into a phrase that aren't there. We just went from, this is the dominant reading, but it might mean this other thing, to all of a sudden saying, look, you shouldn't have that reading because it's reading in concepts that aren't there. Do you see the subtle shift from, from this idea of a, a, a bounded time as a possible reading to all of a sudden it's the right reading? But that wasn't what was argued for. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, so when we read eternal punishment, we need to not read concepts in there. Jesus isn't talking about forever as we think of forever. Jesus may be talking about something else which has all sorts of implications for our further understandings of what happens after we die, which we'll spend the next chapter sorting through. So Rob concludes, we need a loaded, volatile, adequately violent, dramatic, serious word to describe the very real consequences we experience when we reject the good and the true and the beautiful life that God has for us. We need a whole word that refers to the big, wide, terrible evil that comes from the secrets hidden deep within our hearts, our own fallenness, brokenness, and evil, all the way to the massive society-wide collapse and chaos that comes when we fail to live in God's world, God's way. So personal evil and sin, uh, communal, social evil and sin, these are horrendous things that lead to genocides and gender violence and, and the abuse of, of certain people groups that's, that's horrible. 
And we need a word for that. The word hell works quite well. So let's keep it. Okay? Um, so I want to evaluate this biblical argument. And, and so let's kind of dive into it. Because it's a, it's a very huge claim about the time and the purpose of hell. All right, first one is this, and it's something really interesting. This is the entry in the standard biblical lexicon for Ionos, okay? Um, which means by far unending duration without end. Here's Matthew 25 listed in that. Even the pertinent mentions are, are for a period of time without beginning or end, basically eternal. So it, it dominantly and heavily by the biblical lexicon means Eternal. Here's the interesting thing. Rob gets the wrong Greek word. The Bible uses the adjective right here in Greek, Matthew 25. Um, this is the age, this is the word for punishment. Ionion, which is the form of Ionos. Okay? But Rob Bell refers to the noun, Ion, which we get our eon kind of from. Does that make sense? Age, period. He gets the wrong Greek verb. The whole argument for a new view of hell is going to turn on two words. And he got them both wrong. We'll see the other one in a minute. Um, so let's check out Rob's word. My friend uh, Gary Brashears helped with these slides, by the way. I don't want to say that I did, did these. This is the entry for the noun ion in the standard biblical lexicon. The base meaning is unending time or eternity just as with the adjective. doesn't make, make a difference, even though it's the wrong word. This is the entry, entry for the adjective in the standard classic lexicon. What's the difference between biblical and classic? Well, by the time of the Bible, it had been 400 years since, you know, Plato and Alexander the, the Great and that kind of thing. So classical Greek had undergone some modifications to become Koine Greek, which is the trade language of the, uh, of the Roman Empire. And so this is the classic lexicon. And Ionos means unending time. This is the entry for the noun, and the base meaning is a period of time that fills up the period in question. Again, if it's three days, it's all of those three days. If it's forever and ever, or if it's to eternity, if it if it's, uh, comes in a context outside of time, it, it means eternity. And so we get this really interesting thing of Rob saying, the Hebrews didn't really think of time in this idea like the Greeks did of unending. And what he's harking to is this idea of everyone knows that the Hebrew calendar was a very cyclical one. It was done by seasons, and it was done by the harvest, and it was done by the holidays. And it's kind of this cyclical view of time, and it comes around, and it eventually revolves. Does that make sense? And so, you know... That's maybe what God is really after because that's the Hebrew concept. And then hell can be like a period where it churns itself out, love wins. But the interesting thing is, is that that's not only the way that, that the Hebrews used this word or this concept. We talked about the name of the Lord being forever, Psalm 72, 17. The name of the Lord is forever. It's fixed or immovable. It's not cyclical. And it's not just for a period of time, it's for forever. Ecclesiastes 1.4, generations come and go, they're cyclical. But the earth remains forever, fixed like the, the moon is in different passages. Isaiah 25.8 says, um, in those days, 
will swallow up death forever. The, the, the idea of the prophecy and stuff like that is going to swallow up death forever, not just for a period of time, but forever. Um, Hebrews, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We're trying to pick up a, content, uh, a context of, of on and on and on till the end of time. And in Daniel, you see this interesting linguistic usage that gets picked up in other places and by Paul in the New Testament of saying forever and ever and really harping on by, by kind of dotting the exclamation point of that this is for forever. Does that make sense? So God's character hinges on the idea of immutability and for forever, his name and his glory. And the writer of Hebrews tries to say the same thing. We have another um, verse. Uh, I don't know if I got it. Well, we'll hit it later. Let's just move on. All right. So here's, in Bible works, Bible software, different translations, if you can't see it, the NIV, the New Living uh, Translations, the NET Bible. These are different translations, King James, okay, of Matthew 25, 46. Now, if this wasn't a fixed slide, and we could scroll down the end to every single Bible translation, 50 plus. Remember Rob said um, some of them, or, or a lot of them, translated eternal punishment? The reality is, every single Bible translation translated eternal punishment. It's not some do, some don't. It's every single translation does it that way. So what we're saying here, if we're going to try and reread this passage, is what do we know that all of the Bible translators, even the cults, you know, uh, don't know or didn't know when they came to this, one of the most important verses in terms of doctrine in Scripture. um, That should be a cause for concern. That should be a cause for concern, I mean. Okay, this is the uh, entry. This is Matthew 25 in the Greek. Okay, and what's the word here? Uh, it's kolossis, and in this tense, okay, it's kolossin, uh, okay, but here's the word meaning punishment. Down here in Matthew 25, uh, this is the form of the word. This is the lexical form of the word, uh, kolossis, and then kolossin um, here. Matthew 25, transcendent retribution, punishment, infliction of suffering or pain, chastisement, punishment, okay? Uh, Why does that matter? The Bible uses the noun, okay? Remember what Rob said? Kalazzo, which is the verb. So one of the reasons a lot of pastors have really had a hard time with this book and what it's caused with so many people being confused about the doctrine of hell is that it hinges on two words and the tense of both words is wrong. And so the, the problem that came out of it is, if we're really going to argue from, for doctrine, are we going to really do deep study and try and figure out what the text or what Scripture says? Or is this another one of those labor union moves of sentiment where we're doing what's called eisegesis, where we're, we're reading on to Scripture what we want it to say, rather than exegesis, which is a Greek word for, for letting Scripture speak for itself and deriving from it the meaning. Does that make sense? Let's look at the lexicons. This is the entry for the verb, kolazo. That's what Rob uses. In the standard biblical lexicon, it's still penalize and punish. Different form still means the same thing in the time of of Christ. 
This is the entry for the noun, Colossus, in the standard classical. So in the time of, of Plato and Aristotle, um, it adds correction to, um, to chastise, punish, but in the philosopher Plato, who lived more than 400 years earlier, not in the biblical one. And then this is the entry for the verb in the classical lexicon. For the first time, we see any kind of reference to prune. So you get the wrong tense, and you chase it down to a classical dictionary, and you get an obscure reference to horticulture. And again, how that's used is going to depend on context. Right? So even if that's a possible rendering of a word, how do you know how to translate it that? You translate it based on context. So let's look at that. In Matthew, just a couple verses prior to this one on eternal punishment, says this, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Just a couple verses prior. It doesn't seem like what we're talking about here is, is time out. Okay? Um, and then, I, look, I'm not trying... Hear me here. I find that there's more I agree with in Rob Bell and his writings than a lot of wacky fundamentalist Christians that are so black and white that they miss the spirit and the heart of much of what's in Scripture. So please don't hear me as beating up on Rob Bell because nobody is 100% perfect or 100% wrong or bad. We're all mixed in there, right? What I'm trying to do is say this matters. Scripture matters. Building good arguments matters. Us not just reading a book and being sucked in by persuasive rhetoric that fits our emotions and going with that. It matters that we think more than that as Christians. You know, you know what the dominant thing I run into when I, when, when I run into non-Christians? The first thing they think of me is, is I'm an idiot. And then they hear I'm a pastor and they think I'm an idiot child molester. I'm serious. Um, can we do a better job than that? I, I hope we do a better job than that. Um, so, so please don't hear me trying to beat up on Rob. I'm saying context matters. John 15, the, the, the metaphor of pruning is in Scripture in a lot of places. John 15 uh, is one of the big ones. But it's never used the way Rob would intend it to be used here. Horticulture, pruning. Pruning means that you're going to flourish, and so maybe this is a time of pruning in hell. But what we read is just like the goats and the sheep, the pruning analogy is separating the unproductive or wicked from the productive or good. So in John 15, Jesus talks about, I'm the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in, in you, um, you'll bear much fruit, but apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. They're good for nothing. So the redemption isn't that the, the, the wood, the dead wood that gets pruned off somehow gets redeemed. The analogy is one of separation between that which is worthless and that which is good. So even the pruning metaphor, if you look at it in context in Scripture, doesn't give us this idea of a purgatory where, where love wins kind of an idea. So... What do we make of this idea of eternal and punishment? Um, 
Hebrews says this, Just as man is destined to die once, and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people, and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. There's a finality that comes in here. Man is appointed to die once, and then to face judgment. The reason that Paul made the comment, I'm guilty of no man, and he had this level of urgency, the reason he endured beatings and and death threats and all this other stuff was because he felt like there was eternal matters at stake, not just, um, it doesn't really matter what I do, because at the end, God will redeem anyone and everybody um, to, to heaven. So what does it really matter if I go preach? What does it really matter for me to, to go against culture and to bring this message of the kingdom of God? What is it really, why would I do all of this? And the reason is, the reason people died and gave their lives and, and were tortured and were put in, in the circus in the Roman you know, Colosseum was because they believed in a literal heaven and hell that had eternal consequences. And they cared enough to leverage their life for it and to try to bring that message to people that they cared about. So Paul says, look, I've done so much and I'm doing so much that I, I don't bear anyone's guilt. I mean, this is where historic Orthodox Christianity has been. is that It's been appointed for man once to die and then comes judgment. This idea of kind of a new doctrine of hell leads to kind of a passive... What does it really matter? It's all, God's going to do it all himself. At the, we're all going to, you know what I mean? Like it's, we're all going to end up the same place. Um, and there's no consequence. And there is no judgment. And so this conversation really affects how we understand all of historic Christianity. All right. Um, in, in conclusion. Look, I don't understand all of hell and all of heaven. I, don't, I, I wouldn't claim to understand hardly any of it. I'm trying to discern what Scripture teaches about it. I don't know what happens after we die, what it looks like, what it feels like. I don't know who's in heaven and who's in hell. I don't want to go around the rest of my life trying to figure it out. I think Christ told us not to try and figure it out. Um, I want to wrestle honestly with the rationality of things, and with what Scripture actually says in context, and do my best to humbly wait on God and, and, and to try to understand what these things mean and how that should affect my life. But I don't claim to, to get it all. When I was licensed as a pastor, I was down in grad school, and there's a, a, a big group of elders, half of whom were seminary professors, and they grilled me for a whole night on theology as a way of kind of like a rite of passage to... As a, as a licensing board, kind of licensed me, right? And we got to the issue of eschatology. Um, eschatology is the study of end times or last things. Eschatos is the Greek word for, for last. And so it's the study of last things. And there's these dominant views, premillennialism and postmillennialism, amillennialism, um, you know, left behind series or, you know, whatever. And, and I argued for over an hour the different views historically where they came from and, and scripturally where they came from and, and what the strengths and weaknesses were and then said, yeah, but I don't know. Um, and I, I said, look, he's coming and I'm going and that's really where, where I stand at the end of the day. Um, I understand these things. I understand the reasons, but I, but I, don't, I don't get it all. Uh, and one guy was like, no, it's not good enough. You've got to take a position. And the rest of the guys kind of stepped in and they're like, no, nope, that's good enough. 
he knows he knows what he's doing here. We'll move on. Well, after that meeting, the lead pastor comes to me and he says, "Listen, this 60/40 business, 70/30 business, whatever, you and your, you know, your issues, whatever, but when you get in the pulpit, when you get in the pulpit, you've got to be 100%. You got to stand up in the pulpit and you got to be certain for your people so that they can look at you and derive confidence in the biblical doctrines. And so, whatever your issues are in 73rd way, when you stand in the pulpit, you tell them it's one way and that's the way that it is, and you give them 100% certainty. And I've never disagreed with somebody more, and I still disagree with them. My commitment and it's always been my commitment, is that I will be 100% authentic. I don't know a lot about heaven and hell. Um, Jesus even looked at people and kind of, kind of laughed a little bit and says, there's only one that's come from heaven that really knows, you know? So I'm not going to try and claim more than I know. There's two books that I would recommend you pick up at the book area, One on Heaven by Randy Jacobs, or Randy Jacobs goes to Antioch, uh, Randy Alcorn, um, which is a phenomenal book. Francis Chan just put out a book that I'd say if you're going to read Rob Bell's Love Wins, you you read these two in juxtaposition um, to really try and get at what Scripture says, because it matters. For Christians, that's our standard, our canon, our rule, our authority, okay? But my commitment to you is to say, look, I don't find anything irrational about the doctrine of hell. I find that Scripture teaches it. It's the reason that for 2,000 years, this has been orthodoxy, whether I like it or not. I sometimes, like Rob Bell, go to the extreme of being frustrated that people overdo hell. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, sinners in the hands of an angry God. I mean, it's the metaphor of, you know, we're dangling above the, the fires of hell like, like a spider on its web. And, and the idea is so powerful that you've got to avoid hell by all, at all costs. Uh, Johann Tetzel, who was selling indulgences in the time of Luther, that Luther reacted to, would burn himself and say, you, you smell that flesh burning. Your relatives are burning in, in fire right now. And if you buy this piece of paper for Leo X so that he can build himself fancy rooms in, in, in St. Peter's Cathedral, uh, it'll get your relatives out of those fires, you know. As soon as the coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. Would literally burn himself. So I, I react like Bell does to us overemphasizing hell or, or trying to decide who goes there. Bell went on this whole journey of writing this book because one day someone told him that Ga- in a nasty tone that Gandhi was in hell and R- Rob Bell was like, really? I just never really pictured when I was thinking of hell like Gandhi, you know, and that's kind of what led him. But I tend to think we sometimes overdo hell and, and we end up with this fear-based thing. I go to extremes, though, and I realize there's another side to this that I might be guilty of and that we don't talk about it enough. And so there's maybe some truth to what Billy Graham said when he said, if there was more hell in the pulpit, there'd probably be less hell in the pew. And Jesus brought it up for a reason, and the New Testament brings it up for a reason, because it is a stark contrast and corrective. And so as I go to extremes or don't have it all figured out, we need to keep coming back to Scripture because ultimately in the whole counsel of Scripture is where we're going to find truth. C.S. Lewis got after us and said we're all practically not believers in the idea of the inerrancy of Scripture. We talk about it, we debate it. He goes, but nobody really lives it out. 
you know, we like to have these arguments about whether Scripture's without error. He goes, but then in our practice, we all act like we believe it's with error. And, and his way of saying that was kind of like, when was the last time you read the book of Jude? Or when was the last time a women's ministry went through a book other than Ruth or Esther? You know, it, we tend to overemphasize the Scriptures we like. And we all have to fight against that tendency and try and come back to the full counsel of God in all of Scripture. All right. Let me just pray for us. We're, we're well out of time. And, uh, and then we'll take the offering and we can go. Father God, we do come before you humbly and just know that our best guesses are just that, that the truth, fixed truth, you know and we're trying to catch up to. We're looking for it in Scripture. We're looking for it and we're hungry for it. We, we, we ask in prayer. And we're hungry for trying to to wrestle with these things honestly. And I just pray that you would give us the strength and the desire and the fortitude to seek it out wherever it is, to try to understand you, to hold it out loosely enough that you can change out the bad parts of our ideas and replace them with better parts. Um, and in all of it, Father, I just pray that you'd go before us, give us a sense of your presence, um, a sense of your grace as we're weak and we, 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 we stumble. And we thank you for sending your son that even though we're broke and we break things in this world, that you will adopt us as sons and daughters so that we do have the right to have you as a father. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen.